How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Being in fellowship means that we are walking together with him toward a common goal, which is our spiritual uh, maturity. So we need to uh, make sure we're in right relationship with him. We'll have a few moments for silent prayer, for confession of sin if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening to focus upon your word. As we look out around the world around us, we see nothing but uh, disarray, chaos. We see continued looting and uh, property destruction and rioting in some cities. We see a number of other problems that are looming on the horizon. We see a government that's giving away incredible amounts of money. And we know that sooner or later we're going to have to pay it back. Father, we just uh, recognize the only stability really is you. And that's what we're focusing on in our study this evening. You are our rock, and we can trust in nothing else. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, enable us to understand what we study and also to see how to apply it, that our souls may be refreshed and stabilized. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22, and if you're paying attention, you might say, well, what about the last part of 21? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do about that in just a minute. But tonight I want to focus on 2 Samuel 22 uh, because this is a large chunk of Scripture. It is... 51 verses, and Lord willing, we're going to cover all of that tonight. And so you may say, well, why are we in such a hurry? Because I've already taught it verse by verse, clause by clause, phrase by phrase, word by word, when we covered it in its historical context, which was between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel because it is written on the occasion of Saul's death and God delivering David from his enemies. That's Psalm 18. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are about 99.5% the same. Their only difference is some just minor things in, in the Hebrew text. And so rather than going back through this in the nine hours I spent on it the first time, we're going to just summarize it, give a flyover. And for those who want to go back and go through it verse by verse, that's already out there. We did that uh, three years ago. So the focal point of this psalm is really uh, this uh, God delivers, God answers prayer, and God protects us. And this is a tremendous psalm with a lot of verses in it that uh, could be committed to memory because they are a, a tremendous comfort to us whenever we're facing any kind of difficulty or any kind of adversity. So let's just review briefly to see where we are and why we're going where we're going. In Second Samuel, there are three basic divisions. Chapters 2 through 10 is where we see the positive of David's of David's kingdom. This is not necessarily in chronological order, though a lot of it is. God blesses David, and he unites and expands the kingdom. And then in 11 through 20, we see the dark side of David's reign, where God disciplines David for his sins with Bathsheba, his conspiracy to have Uriah uh, murdered, 
And God is going to transform the cursing into blessing because when David confesses his sin, he is going to be restored to fellowship where he can walk with the Lord. And so he can use the spiritual skills and spiritual tools that God provided for Old Testament believers. And then we started last time these six different appendices that come at the end of the book. They are not add-ons. It's not like, oops, we forgot something. But it's sort of a summary of what God did and how God provided for David. And as we look at those, we're going to, we saw last time the organization of the kingdom right at the end of chapter 20, then the halting of the famine judgment, and that was because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. And notice that is spelled um, G-I-B-E-O-N and not Gibeah, G-I-B-E-A-H, because we'll get to dealing with the uh, some of the, one word there, and we want to make sure we get that straight. That was a famine judgment halted last time, and then God protects David from the sword. There's a second Philistine war that's summarized from verse 15 down through verse 22, so that's eight verses. And then David's praise for Yahweh for his faithful deliverance in this whole chapter, 51 verses. And then David's last testament reflecting on the Davidic covenant. That is a short psalm, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7. Then there is a parallel to the portion we're skipping tonight dealing with uh, how God protected David from the sword in 2 Samuel 23, 8 to 39. We will not go through that verse by verse. That's just basically a list of David's mighty men. And then uh, the last chapter, David's confession, which halted a plague. So we will look at it this way just to remind you the structure here is of a chiasm. A chiasm is based on the Greek uh, word for chi or key for the letter X, and you see that superimposed over the text. And the idea here is that in a liter- it's a literary structure to point to something specific. And so the way it's organized is in a way of parallelism where it begins with, uh, for example, here we have the A statement, which is a famine. Then there's a section dealing with David's protection in, in the military, the sword won, and then the first poetry section, which is a song of thanksgiving, and then a parallel to that is the second psalm, which is seven verses, David's last words in Psalm 23. Then we have a sword parallel and then pestilence. So pestilence is parallel to famine. The two sword sections are parallel to each other, and the two poetry sections are each other, so that if something is emphasized in the center. When you didn't have uh, the the tools like boldface type and italics and underlining and all of these other things that we use today to point to things uh, physically in a text, they in the ancient world they developed all manner of tools and imagery and organization in order to in order to bring that about. The centerpiece is the last verse in this chapter. 2 Samuel 22:51 he describing God as the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed to David and his descendants forever. And so that really tells us what this whole section is about. The end part is all about picking specific instances to show how God delivered his king. When we see that word salvation in the Old Testament, uh, more often than not, the word is not talking about being saved from the penalty of sins. It is talking about deliverance from circumstances, deliverance from enemies, deliverance from persecution, uh, things of that nature. And so... David has been protected by God. He has delivered David again and again and again from his enemies. That is God's grace. He shows mercy, chesed, faithful, loyal love to his anointed, to the messianic 
king, in this case the messianic human king David, and concluding to David and his descendants forevermore. And that reflects on the covenant uh, with, with David. Now, one of the things that we get into when we look at this psalm, this psalm in Second Samuel 22 is that it is parallel to uh, Psalm 18. Now, I taught that three years ago, and I put that into its historical place because the opening of the section, it says in verse 22, then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalm 18 says to the chief musician, a psalm of David to the servant of the Lord who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and chapter 22, verse 1 begins with the, and he said. So they're parallel. They're, they're, they're almost identical with just a few little uh, small variations between them. But what happens, and what's interesting, is when you look at some of the uh, arguments and some of the scholarly debates about this, uh, it's amazing that if you were to get a show of hands, most scholars would not accept the fact that David wrote this. And that just shows some real problems with Old Testament scholars and with Old Testament scholarship. And as some wag once said, that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft because choirs are often the source of disruption in a lot of churches. But I've always said, and he bounced into the Old Testament department of the seminaries because more often than not, Old Testament scholars get really messed up when they start going to secular schools to get, or to liberal universities to get advanced training in Hebrew. And Hebrew theology is just rife with with things like this. And and uh, Alan Ross made an excellent observation that that uh, that there are so many scholars, some of the best commentaries in some senses. Some guys are really good in the language. Their theology's not very good. And and he he listed a number of them, and none of these guys believe that David actually wrote this. And what gets me is that the reason is that when you get down into uh, the center part of this particular psalm, you read at verse 20, he brought me out into a broad place. He d- delivered me because he delighted in me. And then you go on to read, the Lord rewarded, rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. Uh, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. And they say, well, David was a sinner. He was a terrible sinner. He sinned with Bathsheba, and he uh, sinned against uh, Uriah. He was a murderer, all of these different things. David could not have written this. And see, if you come at life from a liberal perspective, you don't have a good grasp on total depravity. You don't have a good grasp on the fact that even for somebody who's a believer, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And when you have these statements in the scripture about somebody being blameless in all my ways and I followed the the scripture faithfully, it's not saying that they were sinless or perfect because the scripture doesn't hold that people are ever sinless or perfect. It, It is stating that this is a person who was devoted and loyal to the Lord despite his sins and his failures. And that's what we find when we see the New Testament stating that David was a man after God's heart. Some people have a real problem with that, and that's just because they're legalistic, they have a very shallow view of the sin nature, and and if you have a shallow view of the sin nature, you're going to have a shallow view of God's grace. Because if you're not much of a sinner, then God doesn't need to give you much grace. But if you have a good understanding of how unworthy we all are even as believers, and how many times we fail, and how many times we have mental attitude sins. And it it always amazed me that in seminary, 
that they will kick somebody out for one overt sin or another. I remember one seminary professor came back from um, came back from Israel. He had studied there for about three years after uh, after his work at at Dallas Seminary, and he came back and he'd no longer held to Solomonic authorship of of Proverbs. He no longer held to Davidic authorship of much of the Psalms. And he no longer held to Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. So did did Dallas Seminary fire him? No, but he said, damn, one time in class. And so they fired him. He said a couple of other words, too, that were a little stronger, but it really wasn't all that bad. It's amazing the superficiality that is taking t- takes place in evangelical uh, scho- scholarship. And we have to all understand that we're all sinners, much, much worse than we'll, we'll you know, ever admit to anyone else. And, and sins such as mental attitude sins of arrogance are much more destructive and can't have the potential of being much more destructive than some overt sins. And yet we have this kind of a legalistic, superficial standard. And this is a great hymn of grace. And that's what's important for us to understand because the focal point of this really is on God's grace to those who are loyal to him. And that is why David is giving thanks. And that's the first point that we learn from this hymn is that we are to be thankful in all things and for all things. We see this at the at the end of this hymn. It says, Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Now this comes in verse 50 after he has gone through a number of things in the psalm where he has explained the problems and the difficulties and the adversity uh, that he faced. It's interesting that when I taught this three years ago, it was in September of 2017, September, October, into November, nine lessons on this particular psalm. So I'm going to try to summarize that in one night. But then again, we covered all of Revelation in one hour, so I think that we might be able to make it uh, tonight. But it'll be a good summary, so... You might want to make a note on that at the beginning that uh, those, fir- those first lessons, that if somebody wants a summary, they can go to this lesson. But at that time, we were dealing with Hurricane Harvey and all the recovery and all the things that happened. And I wasn't sure whether that was three or four years ago, so I looked it up and I learned something new, that Hurricane Harvey had three landfalls. And it hit at Rockport, which is down near Corpus Christi. And then two days later, or it hit at Rockport and on an island just off of Rockport. And then it hit the mainland at Rockport and came ashore. So those are two different land landfalls. And then it kind of lost some power and squiggled back out into the Gulf and re-entered uh, the U.S. at Cameron, Louisiana. And so there, there were three landfalls, and we got a record amount of rain off of Hurricane Harvey. And we remember that because of all of the flooding and all the homes that were flooded and all of these other things that happened. And it was in the context of all that devastation and people dealing with the shock of, of that, the floods and all that had happened and seeing just the power of God's creation and bringing about all that destruction that we went through this. And it was quite encouraging in that context. Well, now we're dealing with other issues that we see out there, the uncertainty of, of the future of this country. It's hanging in the balance because we have an election this year uh, between two people who are not exactly what I would consider the very best of candidates, although one is much, much worse because of his socialist orientation. I think of Trump sometimes as just a bull in a china closet. He's kind of like Martin Luther. Luther had a lot of bad theology, 
But he had one thing that he understood, and he understood it well, and that was justification by faith alone. And if you read Luther's theology, he he just sort of gets the ball rolling, but he still has a lot of ideas from Roman Catholicism hanging around. But sometimes you need somebody who's just going to get the ball rolling, and they're they're, they're, that's what they do. They're just that bull in a china closet, and that's how he was described uh, many times. And he really upset upset the apple cart. But what we see here with David is that he looks at, he writes this at the time that Saul was killed. His enemies, that's all the enemies. And I don't think we fully grasp sometimes how Saul had managed to turn a lot of the country against David. And Saul had his army chasing David all through the wilderness. Uh, Saul was continually slandering David and misrepresenting him and all manner of lies and deception about David. And David is away from most of the... Uh, support that he could get. He's away from areas where there's food, where there's water. He's out in a a very uh, desert-type environment in the wilderness of Judea, and there's not a lot of water. And he has uh, has at the beginning his family and maybe a 100 people with him, and that grows to quite a large number from other people who are under Uh, attack by Saul. They've lost property and they've lost their businesses and Israel's in a horrible state because of the terrible leadership of Saul. It is very close to imploding, much like it was imploding during the period of the judges. And yet God has has a plan for David. And so David is looking back on how God delivered and protected him in ways David never could have imagined. And that's the way we need to be when we look at the uncertainties and the chaos that's out there, that we need to rest in God no matter what happens in this election, that God is still in control. No matter what happens with the pandemic, God is still in control. No matter what happens with the economy, God is still in control. No matter what happens to your retirement savings, God is still in control. No matter what happens to uh, your health or the health of your children or the health of your grandchildren, God is still in control. We have nothing that we are to worry about. And instead, we are to be like David and give thanks to God because God is the one who is in control and will provide for us. Uh, one of the things we should be constantly aware of as we look at Scripture is that we should um, have a mental attitude of gratefulness, of thankfulness, uh, constantly focusing not on the negatives and the uncertainties, but on the positives, on what God has done. Because God is not required to do anything on our behalf, but God has done many, many wonderful things for us. And no matter what happens, we're still going to be in a mess nationally because the people in this, in this culture, the people in our country, have not been educated. The, many of the universities are going to be in a horrible situation. The economic ramifications of this virus and the shutdown on universities and on businesses in many different fields it will not be felt for two or three years in terms of its its full ramifications. And so we need to just relax and trust in the Lord. Scripture says we are to rejoice always. And it's unfortunate they chop this up by making it different verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Those two ideas are linked. We need to have a mental attitude of joy, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean you're constantly walking around praying, but it is that you're praying consistently, you're praying um, spontaneously, you're always ready to pray, and you pray when God brings things uh, to your mind in just quick little bullet prayers. 
And that needs to be wrapped around our gratefulness to God for all that he is doing uh, in our lives. It's sad that sometimes uh, when we live in uncertainties, we complain, we're frustrated. Uh, Sometimes people are angry and irritable just because they're uncertain about what's going across. And then there are other Christians that come across as needy because they're, you get around them. You've been around people like this. I've been around people like this. And they just talk about the negatives that are going on. They're the ones who always see the glass as being half empty instead of half full. And Christians should not be like that. We should have about us such a sense of stability and gratitude that people are glad to be around us. We're like a breath of fresh air. Um, I know I've run across a lot of really needy Christians. I pastored a church one time, and I didn't realize all of the uh, implications of it, but the church was founded. One of the key people was a Christian psychologist, and he invited all of his patients who were really messed up to be part of the church. And I've never seen such a basketful of people who had, uh, who were needy and complaining and whining all the time. But in that episode, and then later when I was uh, at, up at Preston City and there was one person there that really firmed this up, I discovered that there's such a thing as vampire Christians. Let's think about vampires. We've all seen Dracula, read about it. Okay, let's think about vampires. Vampires don't see a reflection of themselves when they look in the mirror. Vampire Christians don't see a reflection of themselves when they look in the Word of God. The Word of God and sermons are always good for somebody else, but they're never good for me. I don't need that. They're, they're blind to their flaws and their failures and how needy they come across to other people. Everything applies to someone else. Well, another thing about vampires is they, they get scared off if you hold up a cross. Well, the same thing happens to vampire Christians, that when, you, uh, when a sermon gets too close to home sometimes, our people start talking to them about the fact that, well, you need to be praying about this problem and God needs to, God will solve your problem and you need to apply this doctrine or that doctrine. Uh, they start walking away because they really don't want to hear it. So you'll scare them with the sufficiency of the cross. Third thing is vampires can't survive in the light. They are creatures of the dark. Well, see, this was what happens with vampire Christians. They're carnal. They're walking in darkness and not in the light. And so they really don't want to have anything to do with Christians except for the fourth reason. Vampires are bloodsuckers. They get all their nourishment by sucking it out of other people. And we've been around people like that, and they are so needy and so demanding and everything that when we see them coming, we just sort of tense up, and go, oh, no. And we try to figure out how to go in the other direction. And I had a church with about five women like that, and I just hated it when I would walk in the door because I'd see one or the other start heading to me, and you couldn't stop them talking for for 10 minutes, and it was the kids, and it was, uh, I lost my job. I've never seen women who had so many bad things happen to them, but God couldn't get their attention. So vampires are bloodsuckers and suck the life out of other people, and they're Christians who just suck the, and drain you of your emotions. So uh, we can't be like that. We have to be grateful. We have to be thankful for all God has given us, and we need to follow Scripture. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks for all things. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we give thanks in everything, in every situation. And in 5.20, we give thanks on behalf of all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.14 and Philippians 4.4 4 and following, we read, do all things not some things, not the things you like to do, but all things without complaining or disputing or grumbling or debating or arguing about it, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, and gentleness is a product of grace orientation. Gentleness gives us that opportunity to deal with people and situations in grace and in kindness and understanding. Let your gentleness be known to all men. It's the opposite of complaining and uh, arguing. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, prayer, prayer and by prayer and supplication, which is intense prayer on behalf of yourself or others to, to pray for God to intervene in our lives with thanksgiving. Again and again, we need to be grateful. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will fortify your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this is what we see with, with David. And we see it a little bit later in Psalm 22, 6. David, David says, you have the, the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. I'll make sure I've got the right verse here. Yeah, no, I'm in 23. There we go, 22.6. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, it's not talking about sorrow there. The, the literal translation is the ropes of Sheol tightened about me. And what this describes is, is somebody who just feels like they're hopeless, like there's no way out, where uh, it, it, they, they have been bound. They have been wrapped up. They have been... Uh, put into a position where there's no escape and that their life is over with. And so they feel totally defeated. But the focal point is, and in this psalm, is that God delivers. God answers prayer. We ought not cave into despair. We ought not cave into depression. We ought not think that any circumstance or any situation is too great for the grace of God, too great for the power of God, and uh, that God's love somehow uh, betrays us. Second thing we see in this psalm is that the starting point for every issue in life is God. Just what I've been teaching when I've gone through worldview uh, the past couple of months, uh, our view of life always begins with our view of God or our view of ultimate reality, whether we've thought it through or not. A lot of people haven't thought it through, but what they do reflects an assumption about the ultimate nature of reality. So when we face situations and difficulties and concerns and anxieties in life, then we have to uh, start with God. We start with who he is, thinking through his essence, his attributes. That's what you find again and again in the Psalms. Who is God and and learn what he can do and what he does do, and what he has done for us. To think about those things, just to pause and reflect on the ways that God has blessed us and provided for us. And this is exactly what David does in verses 2 and 3. He says, the Lord is my uh, rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength. And literally the word there is not strength, it's sore. It's, it's the word for rock. He, it's a different word from the rock in the first ver- in verse two, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. And so, when it uses rock in the sense of strength, it's stability. It's something that's not shakable. It's not talking about a small rock you can pick up and throw. It's talking about you know, a huge rock escarpment. Uh, my shield, horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior, you saved me from violence. And uh, what we see here is actually in these two verses, we see eight different descriptions of God that all focus our attention on God as our protector, as the one who uh, delivers from our circumstances, that He's the one who gives stability to our lives, and uh, he is the one who delivers us. So we see the first phrase is he's called my rock. This is the Hebrew word selah, which is a, 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 just a synonym for tzor. Those are the two words that are used back and forth. Also described in Psalm 42.9 and 1 Corinthians 10.4. 
Second, he's described as a fort, fortress. This is the word Mitsuda. You've heard of Masada, the fortress in Israel that was uh, the last stand for the uh, for the Jews after the rebellion of 66 to 70. The Romans had to go down and take it, and it's a formidable fortress up on top of a uh, a, a small butte, and so it's very difficult to get to. And that's what God is. He is a, an impregnable fortress. And that's in Psalm 144.2 as well as Psalm 91.2. And then calls him my deliverer. Now the verb palat has to do with a, a place of refuge. But three times in the Psalms, uh, this form of the word is, is used... Oh. Sorry about that. This form of the word is used uh, as a participle to describe God as the one who is our haven. He's the place where we find safety, where we find sustenance, where we find uh, refuge. And so he is the one who delivers us. This is seen in Psalm 37, 40 and Psalm 40, verse 17. Now, the fourth uses the phrase, my strength, in the New King James, but it's literally my rock. And we see this applied to God in 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-seven, and Deuteronomy 32, 31. Uh, God is also our shield. He is the one who is out in front protecting us from these attacks, Psalm 28, 7, and Psalm 33, 20. And then we have the idiom, the horn of my salvation. Now, the word horn is, a, is used to describe power. If you think about an animal that has horns, this is his weapon. This is a sign of his strength and his power. And so it is often used like that in the scriptures. But also, horns were put on the altars. And so if you've ever seen a picture of an altar in Israel, there are these horns that come out of the four corners. And you hear stories where uh, somebody runs into the temple to seek sanctuary and they grab hold of the horns of the altar. And so that's the idea. But in the, the way they were used on the altar is that the sacrifice uh, sacrifices would be tied to the horns of the altar, the sacrifices for atonement. So the horn of my salvation is not just the power of my salvation, but the power of deliverance. And it picks up on all of that imagery of the sacrifices that God is the one who saves us and God is the one who delivers us. Seventh, it says that God is our stronghold, our mishgav. It's a high place, a refuge, a place of defense. He's then called a refuge, a different Hebrew word, uh, Jeremiah 16, 19. Uh, he, all kinds of places refer to God as a stronghold. Two verses I put in here, Psalm 59, 9, and Psalm 62, 2. That's in number 7. Psalm 62, 2 has several uh, of these different words in that psalm. That's a good verse to memorize. Uh, psalm, I mean, uh, point number 9 and 10 are found later in this psalm. In Second uh, Samuel twenty-two nineteen, God is called his support. He holds up his people so that they he sustains them in times of chaos and difficulty. And he is our lamp. He is the one who enlightens our, our eyes to the truth so that we trust in him. And as we think through that, how do we apply this? We have to think the two things that come to my mind. First of all, God is omnipresent. That means he's fully present to you in every aspect of your life. And so you're not going to face a heartache, a difficulty, a challenge, a chaos, whatever it might be. And God's somewhere else. God's right there. He is present to every part of his creation all the time. He knows, and he's fully aware and fully present to us in those times. In Psalm 139, 7 through 10, David said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. We can't get away from God's spirit or flee from his presence. David says, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, uh, 
Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God, we can't escape God's presence, so he's always with us. God is also omniscient. He knows everything, so he's fully aware of everything that's going on, all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, every single thing. God, God, nothing escapes God because he's present with us and he knows everything. And so in the first part of Psalm 139, David wrote, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon you. God has put a hedge around us. And nothing can come into our lives that God doesn't give permission for. And so God is orchestrating things. I think right now is a time when the church is really being tested, when Christians are being tested. Are you going to stick with the Bible? Are you going to believe in the sufficiency of the cross, the sufficiency of grace, the sufficiency of Scripture? Or are you going to suddenly get into all these human viewpoint popular things right now and get caught up with social justice instead of biblical justice, get, uh, get caught up with Black Lives Matter instead of All Lives Matter, get consumed with Marxist uh, ideologies that lead to violence and destruction? Or are you going to stand firm on the Word of God? And we have numerous pastors and churches and denominations all over this country that are following the popular trend. And they have departed from the Scripture. I heard of one church this morning in Southern California that is split and is probably going to split because half the leaders are buying into all of the social justice mythology and all of the Black Lives Matter uh, Marxism and everything else. And they want to go one way, and the other half of the leadership is steadfast with the Word of God and the grace of God and recognizes all these human viewpoint uh, uh, philosophies as, as what they are. And so we have to know, are we going to stick with God or not? It's all just a test. And so we need to adopt the attitude, let's just sit back and enjoy the ride. God's in control and see what happens and remember that our primary mission is to be a testimony. And when we are focused on the negatives and we're letting it get us upset and letting us get angry and get worried all the time, then we're not much of a testimony. We're not resting in God's uh, will and God's power and God's plan. Always remember that God always delivers us, and there are three ways that he delivers us. He delivers us by removing the adversity. So we have a problem, and God deals with it, and it's gone. Second way is he delivers us through the adversity. We have to go through it, and it may seem like hell on earth, but we're going to go through it. And this is happening to so many Christians outside this country. We get so caught up in our little American uh, culture and preserving our little life that we are uh, not paying attention to the fact that there are millions and millions of Christians who are in horrible conditions and are being persecuted and murdered and tortured and martyred every single day in many parts of the world. And the opposition to Christianity worldwide is continuing. It's, there's more and more opposition in the United States there's more and more opposition in places like Canada and places like England, which historically have been bastions of the truth uh, in Europe. And you get beyond Europe, the area that has been the most, uh, the most stable in terms, of the, in terms of Christianity, and it's much, much worse. And so we have to recognize how blessed we are, but, but it may get much, more, much worse here uh, before our lives are over with or the rapture occurs. And then third, God delivers people out of the adversity through death. He takes us home. And so we, one of those three, and we're, but God's going to deliver us and he's always going to take care of us. A third thing we see from this uh, Psalm is that David describes how disastrous his situation is. He, he said it appears to him that death and destruction 
uh, appear inevitable, and this is thwart God's plan. And we see this in verses uh, verses five and six. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Uh, that that that's a powerful statement. The, and then the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, and actually, it's the the the, um, the snares of Sheol. Uh, the snares of death or the ropes of Sheol uh, surrounded me. He just felt bound, and there's no place, uh, no place to go at that particular time. And it's very interesting in this uh, fifth verse where it says, the floods of ungodliness uh, made me afraid. The word there is Belial. Now, you've heard me talk before about this, this idiom, your sons of Belial, that these, it has to do with destruction and chaos. It's translated here as ungodliness, but it primarily describes acts of wickedness or evil that result in the breakdown of social order. Think about that. Acts of wickedness or evil that result in the breakdown of social order. And just look at what's going on around us with these Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots that are going on and the looting and the destruction of private property. It's taking place in Portland. It's taking place in Seattle where they voted, uh, just the city council just voted to defund the police. This is a violation of divine institution. Five of the role of a nation is to protect its citizens. And we've already seen what happened there when uh, the Antifa crowd got a hold of one part of the downtown area. Someone was shot. It, it destroyed property. And you hear people who say, well, we need to abolish private property. This is just pure Marxism. And this is destruction. This is what David is talking about in this verse uh, when he says that the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. It's fear. You look at what is happening, and it makes you fearful. But then we have to turn to the Lord as soon as we we recognize that. Uh, we look at the foundations of a civilization in terms of the, the six divine institutions of personal responsibility and marriage and family and government and nationalism and Israel. And all of those are being attacked today all over the world. The world has gone absolutely crazy, and they uh, avoid personal responsibility. They want some government to take care of them, but then they're assaulting the government, and they're rioting because they want justice, but they don't have no basis for talking about justice because they don't believe in right and wrong. So they don't have a clue. Justice is what is is people who have things need to give those things to them. That's why when there was this looting and a woman is running through uh, these uh, very expensive elite stores in Chicago stealing whatever she can, they, they, they always take the ex- most expensive items. They know what they're doing. Uh, the Black Lives Matter then comes out to defend those who were arrested for the looting because in their view... Uh, all that stuff wasn't owned by people. It was owned by a business. It's impersonal. It's irrelevant. It doesn't represent the hard work of people. It doesn't represent uh, the the dollars that were earned over the years so that they could buy merchandise and and, and sell it. And, and so what they they see is that the, this is the oppressing class that has oppressed us, and therefore because we've been oppressed. It's class warfare. It's pure Marxism because we've been oppressed by one group. Now they, we, we have a right to everything that they have simply because of that. And that's not justice. That's envy. That's jealousy. That is revenge motivation. These are all evil sins in the word of God, and that is not justice at, at all. So we have people around the globe that they're involved. Every culture has is legitimizing homosexuality, sodomy. Uh, you also look at what's going on with the child sex trafficking. 
you have people like Black Lives Matter screaming about a very, very small segment of people who have lost their life in perhaps an illegitimate way that they define as injustice, but and they're against slavery and they want reparations over slavery that happened 150 years ago. But then they're turning a blind eye to the fact that there's an enormous sex trafficking trade going on. It's sex slavery, and it involves children. It involves minors. And there are displays of, of, of even infant cannibalism all over the world. And this is happening in, not just in Africa, but it is happening. We, we think about... Um, you know, just some of the the news items that have come out about these elites in our society who go off to uh, some island for uh, gross sexual perversion. Jeffrey Epstein and all of his cohorts and friends. We have reached the nadir of perversion in Western civilization, and we've exported it all over the world. It is getting to be as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah ever hoped to be. But, you know, this is what David looked at. He could see this, and that's what he's talking about, is the floods of ungodliness made me afraid, but God. And so in his distress, uh, that's the next thing, is he demonstrates how God moves heaven and earth to deliver those who are loyal to him. In 2 Samuel 22, 7, he says, in my distress, and that's an interesting word because it indicates being in a very tight place. You're under a lot of stress. You're under a lot of pressure. You don't know which way to go. And so in his distress, he calls out upon God, uh, to the Lord, cries out to my God. And he said, he heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. And then what happens? Now, this next section is just remarkable. There's hyperbole here, there's metaphor here, but it is a vivid description of how God moves heaven and earth for the sake of those who love him, how God is in charge. And and when we look at the description here, it talks about earthquakes, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundation of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Now, in the ancient world, there were gods that caused earthquakes, and earthquakes were feared, and storms were feared, and so they had the storm gods and the gods of the earth and the gods of the sea who were responsible for storms and everything. But it is the God of the Bible who controls. He is, in this situation, he is controlling, and he has power over all of these forces of creation because he's the one who created them. And uh, David says, all the, the, the earth shook, the creation trembled. Foundations of heaven quaked because he was angry. So he's using anger here to represent, uh, it, it's an anthropopathism talking about God intervening in history in a strong way. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. God is not like a dragon, but he's using that imagery to convey the intensity of God's intervention. He bowed the heavens also and came down. Where am I? Verse 11. Uh, he, he, and then we see that, that he uses this imagery here that he rode the wind. How often we hear that, that metaphor today, somebody rides on the wind. It just think, it's just a picture of the, they, they're coming speedily, they're coming quickly. Uh, he, rode, uh, he, he rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him. He's in charge of the, of, of the darkness. He wraps himself in the darkness. Dark waters and thick clouds of the sky are all under his control. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He's talking about this is how God delivered him. Now, when we read through Second, uh, 1 Samuel, we never saw that. 
But he is picturing that what's behind the scenes. He's pulling back the curtain. This is what is happening. God is moving heaven and earth to protect us, to watch over us, to provide for us. And this didn't go away just because we're in the church age. We just don't see it. But it's a picture of God's intervention in our lives and in history. Uh, Verse 15, he sent out arrows. He's pictured like a warrior sending out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. The, the thems are the, his enemies. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. God intervenes in the lives of those who are loyal to him. And so... His deliverance of David is then described in verses 17 on. He says, He sent from above, he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. The many waters is just a metaphor. He he feels like he's drowning in all of his problems. God is the one who pulled him out, extricated him from his problems. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. The Lord needs to be our real support, no matter how bad it gets. And for most of us, it's not going to be as bad as it was for David. We just think it is. He also brought me out into a broad place and delivered me because he delighted in me. A broad place, he's been in a narrow place. I pointed that out earlier, that he is in his distress. This is a narrow place where he's under pressure. Now God puts him out on a broad place where he can relax and where he realizes God's protection and deliverance. And in um, verses 21 to 25, this is where he talks about why God did this for him. And it's not for David, it's not because David is special. It's not because David is great. Uh, It's not because David is sinless. It's because David has, to the best of his ability, remained loyal to God's covenant and obedient to God. The worst sin in Israel were not the sins at the end of the Ten Commandments, but the sin at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. If you were a false witness... If you committed adultery, if you were a thief, if you dishonored your parents, that was nothing compared to being an idolater. Why was Israel taken out of the land? Because they violated the Sabbath law and because they broke God's covenant by worshiping other gods. That is high treason. That is... Uh, rebelling against the God who called you, the God who brought you out of uh, out of Egypt, the God who redeemed them, and they are saying that God doesn't exist. This this golden calf is the God that delivered us from Egypt. This is the greatest act of disloyalty and betrayal and treason you can imagine, and that is why uh, David is able to say. Uh, rewarded me according to my righteousness. He wasn't personally righteous. Number one, he's righteous because like Abraham, he believed God and God credited him with righteousness. So it's not his personal righteousness because he's a sinner like the rest of us. And according to the cleanness of my hands, and if we study Psalm 51 as we have, then, then that cleanness comes when we confess our sins, not because we are inherently pure. Uh, God has recompensed me. God is delivering me because of my walk with him. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from the Lord. Now, we think wickedly departed. Well, what about uh, Bathsheba and what about Uriah? Wickedly departing is, is acting as if God doesn't exist and you break the covenant with God and you worship other gods and you turn your back on God. He says, for all his judgments were before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. Now, he's not claiming sinlessness. We we all commit these sins. We all violate God's commandments at, at different times. But our heart is to obey him. And we are loyal to him. We just can't fulfill it all the time because we're sinners. 
And God's grace deals with that. And that's what David is describing all through this. And he concludes with notice in verse 21, it's God, Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. Verse 25, therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness in his eyes. And that cleansing comes because he's trusted in God's forgiveness because he has done what God said to do and he's believed God's promise of salvation and God credited it to him as righteousness and he confessed his sins and he was forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so in these passages, we see God's faithfulness to those who are loyal to him. It reminds me of Micah 6.8. We, t- we tend to look at these things in an absolutist sense when you're a rotten sinner and you can't do this in an absolutist state. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, literally in the text, to, to apply the ordinances of God, literally, in mishpat, to love mercy, God's faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do we fail? Yes. But if our heart's desire is to walk with God and to be loyal and to be faithful, God knows that. And we confess sin and we move on, and God is the one who uh, provides for us and takes care of us. Seventh thing that we learn in this psalm is that we need to acknowledge and describe what God has done for us. That's part of our gratitude. We express what God has done for us. We're thankful for it. We tell people what God has done, not in the silly kind of superficial way so many Christians do it, but but in in significant conversations. We talk about how God has provided for us, not necessarily in front of a group, but with our friends, how God has intervened in our lives. And in verse 28, we read, Uh, David say, you will save the humble people. The contrast here is between the humble person who's humbled himself and the arrogant person. Uh, Verse 26, with the merciful, you'll show mercy. With blameless, mercy is grace orientation. The blameless man is the one who's uh, following God's commands and confessing sin when he fails. Same thing with the pure. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Humble are those who've humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, and they need his grace and depend upon him. And then in verse 29, he says, For you are my lamp. God is the one who enlightens us in, the, our, in all the problems in our, in our life. And today we have the Holy Spirit in our spiritual lives. David had the Holy Spirit, but only in relation to leading and being the king. Old Testament uh, prophets and kings and a few others had a temporary endowment of the Holy Spirit, and that wasn't for the purpose of their spiritual life or their spiritual walk. It was for wisdom and skill in leading uh, God's people. And so he says, you are my lamp. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness as, as a leader, as the, as the king. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. God gives us the ability to handle the adversity and to overcome it. The eighth thing we see in this psalm is that because of who God is, we can handle anything. Uh, Because of who God is, his ways are perfect in verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. So his way is perfect. His word is is proven. It's demonstrated. It's trustworthy. And he's a shield to all who trust him. For who is God except the Lord in verse 32? Who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock? There we come back to the idea of stability. He's our foundation. He's our protection. Who is our rock except our God? Then he says, God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer, sets me on a high place. So he's thinking about like the ibex in uh, Israel or like a mountain goat. Uh, God gives us stability in difficult places, and he teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. I think Saul, I mean, I think Paul summarized this in Philippians 4. 
He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can face any situation. And just before that, he said, I, I know how to abound. I know how to be without. I can live in any circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. And then as we go on, uh, he describes not only uh, what God does for those who trust him, but that he is God in verse 32, and he's a rock. And because of that, David has strength and power, and God guides and directs him. In verse 33, God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. Uh, God makes his way secure, his feet like the feet of a deer, and sets him on high places in verse 34. Uh, Fourth, God trains him for war. God gives him skill with his weapons. In verse 35, he teaches my hand to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. It gives him skill with his weapons. Uh, And fifth, God protects him with his salvation, and God's grace provides all he needs in verse 36. Your Your gentleness has made me great. That is a relation to God's gentleness is an expression of God's grace to him. And so David goes on in verses 37 to 39, you enlarged my path. Instead of a narrow path, it's a broad path. So by widening the path, he's blessing David. My feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. God gave him victory. Uh, verse 39, and I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. So this last part, he's just rehearsing and, remind, and talking about what God did in giving him victory over all of his enemies. And then verse 43 says, I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. And then all of this goes to verse 50. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. This is a tremendous psalm to think through in any time of difficulty, reminding us of all that God does for us. And all of this is built upon God's love, for those who are faithful to him and God's faithfulness to us at all times. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the truths in this psalm, of your greatness, of all that you do behind the scenes that we're unaware of, to protect us, to watch over us, to provide for us, all of the ways in which you intervene as we go through testing. And yet, Father, so often we focus on negatives instead of being grateful and thankful for all things and in all things. And we dare not let the circumstances of situations around us uh, get us down and discourage us. Uh, But we should be uplifted because no matter what, we live above our circumstances. Our happiness is not dependent upon our circumstances. Our stability is not dependent upon these things, for we trust in you, and you never change. Father, we're so thankful for that. In Christ's name, amen.